So next week, you don't want to miss, not that you would, but you want to be here next Sunday because we're going to have our Thanksgiving service. So it's going to be a special time of testimonies from people giving praise basically to God about what they're thankful for. And so it'd be a good opportunity to bring a non-Christian friend or someone who currently doesn't attend church and let them hear the praises of God from his people. Okay? And we'll just have a good time together to prepare our hearts for the holiday that we celebrate together called Thanksgiving that we might celebrate in a way that would honor God, glorify him. It is about food, certainly, and I guess about football, uh, but there's more to it than that. There's way more than that. So this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Are you guys ready to get into the word? Okay. I hope so. We're going to be in it deep. Uh Uh-oh. That just means I go long, but you guys are used to that, so... Amen. All right. Thank you. That voting. Okay. Listen, this, let me just intro this text. It's kind of a long intro. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We'll get to the text in a second. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue church Bibles. Turn to page 848. That'll bring you right to this section here in Mark's gospel. We're moving through Mark's gospel one section at a time, but, um, I titled the message today, Inferior Elitist, which I'll explain in a second. Listen, it's disturbing to consider the statistics of how many students who enter into the secular college and university system will abandon their faith before they leave that system. In fact, the statistics say that up to 50% of those students who once claimed to follow after God or claim some type of faith will give it up altogether. And the statistics are higher if they're not plugged into some local church in the area or some Christian campus. Scary. Shocking. But why does it happen? Well, it would be unfair to try to pin it on just one thing, but there is no question that the primary problem is the hostile position many secular college and colleges and universities take towards specifically Christianity and generally towards God. In fact, there is very little tolerance among a good number of what I call the intellectual elite. You might know them as college professors. For views that they consider to be inferior, like Christianity. In fact, when you enter into their college and universities, Christianity is often looked at as something that is ignorant or simple-minded. And they painfully are aware in their eyes that they need to rid you of any remnants of this foolish Christian thinking. And they do a good job of it. But these people who claim superiority in the realm of knowledge, while at the same time rejecting God and His truth, they remind me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Maybe you've read it before, maybe you've heard it. Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's what God's Word says about those who reject God's claims and truth statements. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. Beloved, there is a real battle. Most, of, most people are not even aware of it. There is a real battle being fought for our minds, for the minds of our children, for the minds of our leaders, for our minds, beloved. A real battle. And, and most people don't even realize there's a war going on. Satan is called the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. And he works tirelessly. He does not rest. He does not sleep. He's had thousands of years of human history to know exactly the lies that he can use and work the best to manipulate people and destroy people. And he continues through various ways to lead people from the truth of God's Word with his lies. 
In this regard, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are very important and instructive to us as Christians. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Commenting on these verses, John MacArthur writes this in his study Bible that we have available. And if you don't have a study Bible, that's why we have them back there. I would encourage you to get one. This is what he writes in that study Bible regarding this passage. Thoughts, ideas, speculations, reasonings, philosophies, and false religions are the ideological forts, I'll explain that in a second, in which men barricade themselves against God and the gospel. Taking every thought captive emphasizes the total destruction of the fortresses of human and satanic wisdom and rescuing of those inside from the damning lies that have enslaved them. Here's what John is saying. People use their minds and their reasoning and their philosophies and their education to build mental fortresses. You think of a fortress, what's it designed to do? Keep the enemy out, right? They build mental fortresses or belief systems that help them keep out God's truth. That's what they do. Sin, rebellion, foolishness, that's the words that describe this type of behavior. I title today's message, Inferior Elitists, which I know probably sounds like an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms. It's like saying jumbo shrimp. The two, the two don't go together, it seems. How can you be inferior, meaning not superior, but substandard in status or rank or quality, inferior, and at the same time be an elitist? which is an assumed position of superiority over others. Well, it's like this. When someone assumes a position of superiority in regard to the area of knowledge or truth, and at the same time believes and promotes something that is contrary to God's knowledge, His truth, His word, then they are really fools who claim to be wise. And that's why I refer to them as inferior elitist. Sadly, a large percentage of our human population have surrendered, beloved, their minds to the many lies or false truths of inferior elitist. Maybe you have. And they are walking around in darkness while at the same time proudly boasting and claiming enlightenment professing that they really know the truth. You see, you stupid Christians, you're just simply uneducated. But if you went and got a good four-year degree like me, then you would really know all of that is hogwash. What really gets me is the arrogance that is often displayed by inferior elitists toward anyone who challenges their unbiblical thinking, even in a loving way, even in a godly way. Just... Wanting to talk about the situation and the facts. Inferior elitists are quick to belittle and mock Christians for their simple faith in God and His Word. And sadly, this method has been successful in turning many young or immature Christians away from the truth. And that's just where we are. But inferior elitists, beloved, don't just travel in secular circles. Secular meaning non-religious. They also travel in religious circles. Circles of false religion. And ultimately, they are not much different than the secular crowd or the secular professors because they both, to different degrees, refuse to accept or grasp the truth of God's Word. And as a result, they remain deceived while boasting at the same time in their superiority of their perverted and corrupted knowledge. Well, that was the case with a religious political group that existed in Jesus' day called the Sadducees. The Sadducees. 
If you're there, open your Bibles. We'll get to it in a second. But if you're not, open them to Mark 12, 18 through 27. Let me say a few more words about the Sadducees that we're going to look at in a second so you, you understand where, they, where they're coming from. According to historical research, the Sadducees were educated men, extremely educated. And many of them held very prominent positions in the society. They represented the city dwellers as opposed to the, the country bo- folks. You know what I'm saying? The urban people, the people that really know what's going on, not you poor saps out there in the sticks. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, obviously. They represented the wealthy, the sophisticated class, and they were centered in Jerusalem, the hub of everything that was happening at that time. They were small in number, but they had a great influence politically and religiously. In fact, many of them held prominent positions on the Sanhedrin. We talked about, I believe we talked about this last week, but the Sanhedrin was a Jewish supreme court that rendered final verdicts in the civil and religious matters of the Jewish nation. So they had a lot of power. They were also more willing than the common people to submit to the authorities of the Roman occupation. Why? Because they wanted to do anything they could to avoid losing their prominent positions. They liked their status. Now, they may have been, most likely, more of a political party. In other words, they were more heavily involved politically than they were religiously. But they were a religious party, and they did firmly promote religious views that were contradictory to what the common beliefs of the Jews were, or their general understanding. For instance, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. Now, we just sang about it, two or three songs about the resurrection. We talked about it. They did not believe in it. One historian from that era, his name is Josephus, recorded this about the Sadducees. They believed the soul and the body perish together at death and went out of existence. Hey, there's a lot of people that think that. A lot of people think that. So they're not alone. Consequently, there are no penalties for bad behavior and no rewards for good behavior because death ends human existence and therefore there can be no future judgment by God. You know, all that crazy talk about you're going to face the judgment of God someday. That's ridiculous because when you die, it's all over. You go into the ground, worms eat your body, there's nothing left. Acts 23.8 also records something about the Sadducees that is similar to what Josephus was saying. Acts 23.8 says, For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees, who were a prominent religious group, they accepted all of those. So needless to say, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get along too well. Now, I know it might seem hard to imagine a religious group who denies the reality of some sort of afterlife. Because they did. But such appears to be the case with the Sadducees. Now, the Bible makes it clear, if you've read it, that there is reality beyond what we see and know physically. A life in existence hereafter, beloved. But the sophisticated Sadducees were just flat out unwilling to believe such things. Nonsense, they said. One writer says this about the Sadducees. They considered themselves the religious aristocrats. The religious aristocrats of Judaism intended to look down on everybody else. In other words, they believed that their understanding of reality and Judaism, which was the religion of Jews, was superior to everyone else's understanding of such things. Another commentator says, unexcelled educational credentials add to the power of the Sadducees. Okay, so just think of it this way. When someone has three or four Things after their name, doctor, professor, all of these things, right? What do you think of them? You probably think, wow, they're something. Very educated. They know what they're talking about. It's the same way with the Sadducees. They were highly educated men. And so when they spoke, there would be a certain sense where, well, these guys must know what they're talking about because 
They're not from the country. They're from the city. And their lifestyle has allowed them to have the highest education possible. It says, No one could match them for the intricacy of their arguments or the arrogance with which they approach the subject. In other words, if you got into a debate with these guys, you probably would lose. They would outmaneuver you. They were just better at speaking, at making arguments, and, uh, and showing the weakness of your argument and the strength of theirs. They were the intellectual elite, beloved. But I have no problem with someone being educated and having a bunch of things after their name. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But when sin and smart are mixed together, it produces refined rebellion. Write that down because I made it up and I like it. <laughs> when sin and smart are mixed together, it produces refined rebellion. I'll be honest with you, I don't make up a lot of things. I'm just repeating what other people have said. But that one I made up. Advanced and sophisticated ways to resist God's truth. That's refined rebellion. Advanced and sophisticated ways to resist God's truth. These guys were good at it. So why did the Sadducees not believe in the resurrection? Why? Well, Jesus answers that question. We don't, we don't have to guess. Let's look at the text together. Starting in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And Mark just writes that because the audience that's receiving this letter are Romans. So in case they're not familiar with a Jewish sect of Judaism called the Sadducees, he just informs them. All right, here's the Sadducees. They came to Jesus, by the way, They deny the reality of the resurrection. And he goes on. And they asked him a question, that is Jesus, saying, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Verse 20, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he did, when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So we're going to consider two important things this morning from this text that we must grasp. Very simple. So that we might avoid doing the same thing that the Sadducees were doing, and that is deceiving ourselves. The first thing is we must grasp the meaning of God's word, and the second is we must grasp the magnitude of God's power. And these points are both in your outline. Now, we're actually going to look at point two first and point one second. I only put them in that order because that's the way Jesus pronounces them to the Sadducees. But then he explains them and backs them up in the opposite order. So that'll make sense in a, in a moment here. Remember, if you don't, just recalling the context of this encounter was the religious leadership of Israel is trying to discredit Jesus among the people and or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. We looked at this last week, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. The bottom line is, beloved, they wanted Jesus gone because he continued to challenge their authority. They were hypocrites and he was exposing them. They were wrong about many biblical passages and he was exposing them. Their lives were a sham, and he was exposing them. Well, last week we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians, remember? And they tried to trick Jesus, trap him, the text says, by asking him a question about paying a tax to Rome. And if you were here last week, that's Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, you know that that didn't go very well for them. 
Jesus outmaneuvered them. Jesus spoke the truth. So now you have the Sadducees, wave two. And they're convinced, beloved, because of their intellectual arrogance, that they'll be able to come to Jesus and handle Him easily. They'll be able to make Him look like a fool from their sophisticated arguments about the resurrection because they know Jesus believes in the resurrection. He's even talking about the resurrection. He's even talking about being resurrected. So they're rubbing their hands. They can't wait to lay this on him and undo him, they think, in front of the people. So here's how they do it. They bring up this Old Testament law that God had established for the Jewish people to help prevent the extinction of a family line and to protect the widow by keeping the family inheritance within that family. Let me quickly explain that. The law was referred to as a levirate marriage. A levirate marriage. There's multiple ways to pronounce that, but it doesn't really matter. Levirate marriage. It's detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. If you want to read the whole section of this law that was given to the Jewish people. Now, levir, it comes from the Latin. Remember, Rome is in charge. Latin is their language. This is how they refer to this law, the levirate marriage. Levir means husband's brother, or another way to look at it would be brother-in-law. Husband's brother or brother-in-law. All right. So I don't want to dive real deep into this law because it'll be a distraction to the real text. That isn't even the point of the text. They bring this up. It's an established law. But the bottom line is this. If the woman's husband died and she did not have a son, then one of the deceased husband's unmarried brothers was to marry the widow in the hopes that they would conceive a son. The first son of this new relationship would be treated or registered as if he was the son of the dead husband. And the son then would be allowed to inherit the father's property because it was only transferred from father to first son. Or two sons. And so the wife would not become destitute, which often happened in that situation. If there was no situation like this and she died and there was no son, she'd have nothing. Beyond that, the family line and name continues. Now, that might seem weird to us. I understand that. And maybe some of you wives are thinking right now about your husband's brother (laughs) and are more bothered by this whole thing or maybe you think it might be a good thing I don't know but other eastern nations besides Israel practiced a similar arrangement so that's the law so they reference the law it's in God's word it's in Deuteronomy Moses wrote the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy called the Torah, the law of the Bible They refer now to Deuteronomy, a writing of Moses about this law. And then they tell this theoretical story based on the law with an outcome that they thought showed the ridiculousness of the resurrection. That's what they're doing. So they're setting Jesus up. Okay, so here's the law, Jesus. Now get this. The woman kills off seven guys. The whole thing's ridiculous. You've got to understand that. One after another. She's not divorcing and marrying. They're dying. So I'm not sure what's up with her, but they're all gone. And none of them are able to produce a child. None of them. And then she finally croaks herself. Dies. It's a story, babe. It's not true. It's just a story they're making up. Don't get upset. So here they go. They're just, you can see it. So they tell the story. Okay, Jesus, so this is going to be good. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. See what they're doing? One writer says, by reducing the doctrine of the resurrection to an absurdity, 
The Sadducees hoped to confound the unsophisticated bumpkin from the north country. Right? He's from Galilee, folks. He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of there. Bunch of morons up there. We'll show this guy. We will undo him right before his people with our incredible intellect and ability to debate. Well, what are the possible responses Jesus could have given? Ooh, you got me there. You know, I never thought of it like that. You guys are really so smart. I mean, how could there really be a resurrection, right? I mean, that would be so confusing to the husbands and the wife. All right, that could have been one possible response. Or or maybe he could have said, I don't know, guys. Maybe they could be brother husbands. I know there's some polygamists who have sister wives. So maybe that would have worked out. But I'm not sure how the guys would have responded to that. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's one possibility. I don't, he didn't say anything like that. By the way, he also didn't say this. You know what? We all believe in God. And I know you guys don't believe in the resurrection, but can't we just all be friends? He didn't say that. See, Jesus actually believed that we should stand for what the Bible says and that we should tell people when they say this and it doesn't align with the Word of God, we should tell them that. Not say it doesn't matter. Not say it's cool. We're good. Who cares if we're good if you're not good with God because you believe a lie? Well, how does Jesus respond? Look back at the text, Mark 12, 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Love that. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You have to understand what an incredible insult this was to those who claimed religious superiority. They said they knew the Scriptures better than anybody. They had more education. How dare you tell us we don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, they didn't respond, beloved, but I can rightfully speculate that certainly could have been going through their minds. This was a verbal slap in the face by Jesus. It was a kind one, but a slap nonetheless. This is why you guys are wrong. You don't even know the Scriptures. And based on the original language of this text, you could translate this phrase, is this not the reason you are wrong? This way. Is this not the reason you are deceiving yourselves? Is this not the reason you are deceiving yourselves? What reason? Well, it's simple. He said you don't really know God's Word. You, you claim you do, but you don't. And you don't know His power because if you did, you wouldn't be standing here acting like fools challenging me with some ridiculous hypothetical question. I just, the whole scene is sad and laughable at the same time. These guys think that they're going to make Jesus out to be a fool and, and really they're the fools. They're the fools. In fact, commentators think this, this case that they brought forth is so ludicrous, you know, the seven husbands, that it may have been a well-known Sadducean joke used to ridicule the resurrection. So in other words, someone would say, hey, we believe in the resurrection. They see one of their Pharisee buddies or cohorts or whatever. They'd see them or they see someone about the resurrection and go, tell them the one about the seven husbands. Tell them, tell them. Look at them. Oh, what an idiot. You know, that's a, they're mocking they're, mock, they're not interested in the resurrection. They're not interested in knowing the truth. They want to mock the truth of the resurrection. They want to mock Christ. It's like people today who use straw man arguments against Christian claims about God. For instance, they'll say something like, Hey, is God all powerful? They want to trap you. You say yes. They say, Is God all good? Yes. Well, then explain the existence of evil. Now, some people honestly have a question, okay? I don't want to discount that for a second. Some people are just trying to work it out. How does that make sense? But many, that is not the case. 
So they'll go on and say, well, if evil exists, therefore God is either not all-powerful or because he would remove it, right, if he was good, or if he is all-powerful, then he's not good because he allows evil to exist. So your God's all messed up, and that's why I refuse to believe in him. But they define the argument according to their terms. That's what we mean by a straw man. They set this thing up as a straw man, their argument, that they can easily punch holes in and he collapses. There's an answer to that question, beloved. There's an answer to many of the questions that people ask. The question is whether or not they really want the answer. Anyway, let's look at the second point together first here. We must grasp the magnitude of God's power. That's what he says. He says, listen, you don't know the scriptures. You don't grasp the magnitude of God's power. I'm going to start with that one because he talks about that one first. He, he continues to demonstrate that reality in the text. Mark 12, 24, just, you don't know the power of God. And see, this was a real problem because for them, the resurrection was flat out impossible. That's what it implies, Right? You don't know the power of God. If you knew the power of God, you'd have no issue with the resurrection. But because you don't, you're second-guessing the resurrection. I mean, how in the world is God going to bring something like that about anyway? Think about it. Guys, really. How can, res- how can, you, how can you resurrect dust? Does that make sense? In our minds? Have you ever seen that, by the way, happen? You ever seen a scientific study, double-blind study? You ever seen one of those, university or anything, where they've resurrected dust, so you have the scientific evidence to back it up? You ever seen that? Can you even imagine how that would work? Any of you? If you can, just let me know afterwards, because I really can't either. I can't either. I don't know how you resurrect dust, because I'm not God. And I definitely don't know after you've resurrected the dust how you give it life again. Because I've never seen anything like that in my experience. I have no way of doing that. How can death be overcome? And and oh, by the way, what about the implications of such a thing? I mean, just let's look at marriage, for instance, and that whole situation. Seven husbands, one wife. How is God going to work all that out? Well, if you knew the power of God, then these type of questions would not frustrate you so much. They would not bother you so much. Because you'd be willing to accept to one degree or another, listen, God is... If He can create the universe by speaking it into existence out of nothing, if and that's what the Word of God says, Genesis 1, if He can do that, then what is it for Him to pull some dust together out of the ground and give it a resurrected body and give it a resurrected life. What is it for him? Right? Nothing. But the idea that God would create a future existence in reality that would be very different than what the Sadducees observed was beyond them. I just can't see it. So I don't believe it. They had restricted the power of God to fit their limited frame of reference. And therefore the resurrection was a rational and foolish, right? They set up their fort and they only allow in what they want to allow in. And they keep out anything that challenges their position. This is what people do, beloved. They underestimate and deny God's power in various ways and because of it, they make serious errors in their thinking and they enter into a world of deception. Now, I could go on about that, but... It'll go off track. Jesus here dismisses their false assumptions by affirming the truth of the resurrection and then establishes God's power to create a reality or existence that perfectly accommodates the resurrection life. How does he do that? Well, look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 12, verse 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now Luke Another gospel also has this story, adds a few more words that are helpful for us in understanding exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says there in verse 35 in Luke 20, they neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal 
to angels. All right, so let's look at this. But let me say first, so there is no marriage, according to Jesus, in the resurrected life. Are any of you sad? Ah! Someone said, praise God. I don't even understand. (laughs) We'll just let that one go. I actually know who said it. I'll talk to him later. (laughs) Kidding, I'm kidding. But listen, um, actually my wife and I were saddened by such things when we first discovered this many years ago. There's no marriage in the resurrected life. (laughs) I can't call you baby anymore. I don't know. I don't know, but uh, there is it. And the Bible says, why? Because we will become like angels. Now, it does not say we will become angels. It does not say that. And yet people think and say, all the time I hear this, oh, you know, my dad's in heaven, he's an angel. No, he's not an angel. He is like the angels, but he is not an angel. He does not have wings. He does not have a halo. He does not. That's, there's no biblical support for that. But anyway, just wanted to point that out. We will become like angels. That is, we will become immortal. That's what Luke says. That's the connection. It says, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. They are like angels. This is what Jesus is referring to. At least that. That's the minimum that he's referring to for what it means for us to be like angels. We will become immortal. Okay, so... What does that have to do with marriage? Well, that's a good question because I don't understand the connection at first. And, and it is a little difficult, but let me give it a shot. Marriage has several good purposes, beloved. But one of the main purposes is procreation. That's one of the main purposes, to create other little ones like you. And to the first couple God created, Adam and Eve, he gave this command. This is what he told them. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go make babies. Another way of saying it. Death makes procreation a necessity. Otherwise, the human race would cease to exist. Right? If all of us stopped procreating, it would only be 70 to 100 years and the human race would be gone. You understand how that works? Pretty simple math. But in the resurrection where death is no longer a possibility because people now are like angels, that is, they are immortal, they do not die, procreation then will no longer be a necessity. And the institution of marriage that God originally established, at least in part, for procreation will apparently then also become unnecessary. The environment has changed. The conditions have changed. The relationships have changed and therefore marriage is no longer a part of that new reality. That's it. That's all Jesus is saying. One writer says, God's power to create and restore life burst the limits of both logic and imagination. Present earthly experience, that means what we look at, what we see, what we feel now, is entirely insufficient to forecast or to look into the future and see divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine the Grand Canyon at sunset. All right, so let me just say to my... He says, listen, us trying to imagine all that heaven is and all those realities are is the same as trying to help a baby in the womb understand what a sunset or the Grand Canyon looks like when the sun sets over it. His environment is completely void of such things. He's surrounded in fluid. Darkness, okay? So to try to explain that to him, would he would just think, wow, he would have to accept it on faith and the belief that you know something that he doesn't. End of story. What's he going to say? Prove it to me. How am I going to prove it to you? You can't see it until you get out of this place, Bubba. And when you get out, then one day you'll get old enough, your eyes will be big enough, we'll take you to the Grand Canyon, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when the sun sets over it. He has to accept it on faith. He has to accept it on the fact that the one speaking to him knows what he's talking about. We don't want to do that. We don't want to accept it. People don't want to accept it. 
Listen, another writer says, his questions, questioners had thought of the resurrection life only in terms of the present earthly conditions. That's how they thought about the resurrection. That's why they were saying, <laughs> okay, so this guy dies, this guy dies, this guy dies, she dies, now they're resurrected. Now what? Well, how are they going to deal with that, Jesus? Because they're just, they're so earthly centered and focused. That's all they can think about. Well, everything will be just the same. They're wrong. They had failed to see that God's power could make a new world in which the conditions of life were completely and wholly different than what they were used to, what they had been familiar with. And His power in transforming the resurrection body no longer made marriage a necessary part of this future state. See, they didn't, Jesus says, they didn't really know God's power. Which is crazy, beloved, because they're quoting from Deuteronomy. They're quoting from one of the first five books of the Bible, which means they knew Genesis. And so when they read over God creating out of nothing, hello, did they see there? Whoa, that's power on display. Certainly God could create an environment, a world, where the resurrection makes absolute sense, even if I can't fully understand that, certainly God could do that. Because I certainly can't figure out exactly how He created something from nothing. Get your mind around that. You won't. But that is what God did. See? So, but they don't, they don't really know God's power. Not really. Not really. And you know why they didn't know God's power? Ultimately because they didn't know God's Word. And it wasn't that they hadn't read God's Word. That's the sad thing about this. They had... But they didn't really understand it. They had to read over it in some cursory, blind way without fully or in any way really grasping the meaning of what that very word was communicating. And that brings us to the last point, the first one actually, the second on our outline. We must grasp the meaning of God's word. We must grasp the meaning of God's word if we want to keep from being deceived like these Sadducees. See, Mark 12:24 says, Hey, is that not the reason you are wrong? Booyah! Jesus lays it out. That's why you're wrong. I'm not going to tiptoe around this. I'm not going to try to soften the message. You're wrong. And here's why you don't even know the Word of God. That's why you don't know His power. And then He goes on to prove that point in Mark 12:26. Man, He does it so skillfully, beloved. He embarrassed these guys. He embarrassed them. Mark 12:26. Look back at the text. It says, and as for the dead being raised, since you have a question about that, fellas, almost tongue-in-cheek, almost sarcastically, you could, you could see this in the text. Have you not read? Beloved, they had read it. He just wants to call their attention to it. One more. Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush. Now, beloved, this is kind of cool, just to show you. They didn't have chapters and verse breaks in the Scriptures. Okay, Those were added later on, much later on, so that when commentators were making comments about the text, they could tell you what they were commenting on. So they could say, this is about Exodus 3. This is about Deuteronomy 4. So back in the day, the way they would tell you where they were thinking about the Scriptures, they would call something up, and try to give you some details. That's all Jesus is doing here. Do you not, have you not read in the book of Moses, you know, in the passage about the bush? Okay, so immediately go, the bush. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, we know what you're talking about. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Oh, just in case you forgot, you are quite wrong. Now, I, I know I read into all this, and I'm not sure if Jesus was animated as much as I am or even raised his voice. Maybe he just said, you're quite wrong. I don't know. But I, I, that's the way I think of him. He's on fire, man. He's a passionate man. Of course, they had read this passage, beloved. But like I said, they read it without any understanding because it refutes the false thinking that they had about the dead being raised, and the idea, certainly the idea, that death ends everything. Remember, that's what they thought. Hey, death is the end of us all. We're done. Go into the ground, no more afterlife. 
Well, let me explain this simply. How does it do that? How, how does this passage do that? He quoted from Exodus 3, as I said, where God appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. That's the reference to the bush. So you've got this bush that's on fire, not burning up, not being consumed, so that's weird. Okay? Different. And now you have God speaking to Moses out of the bush. It was there that God said to Moses, and they were very familiar with this text, by the way, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the names of these three men may not mean anything to the 21st century reader, that's us, with little knowledge about the Old Testament. Some people don't even know who who these people are. But they represent and would recall to the Jewish mind the unbreakable promises that God had made to them and secured forever by a covenant that he made to Abraham and then reaffirmed to Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, Isaac's son. So there's a link. There is a family link between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And more important than that, there is a covenant or promise link, a contract that God has made initially with Abraham and has been reaffirmed to each generation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These promises that God made, what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant, were not just to be experienced by future generations, but they were promises to those men as well. Such as, and we won't get into all of them, but such as the promise of a glorious land, a real land, that would become their everlasting possession. In other words, they would own it, they would possess it, they would live on it, they would benefit from it. Okay? But they never got it. They were in the land at one point, but they did not possess the land. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says this, these all, and if you look at the context, and we don't have time, but feel free, look at it. These all refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus like that Make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And all he's saying there is they were in the land, but they were still saying they were strangers and exiles because they didn't possess the land. They didn't own the land. Their enemies still owned the land. They weren't experiencing the blessings that they said they would have from the land as God had promised. So all these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones to whom God made covenant promises, died while still seeking out those promises. So listen, get the flow here. One writer says, if the death of the patriarchs, whenever you hear that word, he's talking about our, the fathers of the faith of Judaism, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises God guaranteed by the covenant. Breach. That means he's broken his promises. It is infidelity, that means keeping his promise, to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. Not just will, must. If he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have not ceased to exist as the Sadducees suggested, then the only way for God to ultimately fulfill his promises to them is to resurrect them again. And that is why even after these men, by the way, in Exodus 3, 6, where this passage takes place, they're all gone. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have they're buried. They're in the ground. So this statement is made after, the fact, after that fact. And God says there in Exodus 3, I am, not I was long ago when they lived. He didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back in the day when they were roaming around, but I am no longer their God because they have ceased to exist. No, he said, I am current reality right now, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob. Not only do they exist, but their very existence, beloved, guarantees their resurrection in order to fully receive and experience the promises God made to them. For His promises will not and cannot, beloved, can you imagine, if His promises could be broken by death? That's what they're saying. They don't even realize how foolish they're being. By saying these have ceased to exist and reminding them of the covenant that has been made to them and their descendants, and then saying, well, they never received it, so I guess it's the end of that. They are saying that death beat God. So God wasn't able to make it happen while they were still alive. And since there's nothing you can do about it now, God, they're dead. You failed to keep your promises. That's what they're saying without even realizing it by denying the resurrection. Pretty serious, pretty significant. It says, he is still the patriarch's God. One writer says, he is still a patriarch's God, which would not be true had they ceased to exist at death. That is, if death ends it all. And his covenant faithfulness implicitly guarantees their bodily resurrection. And that's why he closes out here in Mark 12, 27. That's why he says, in case you missed it, boys, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Fools. Maybe he smiled when he said it. You know, I've heard that if you smile when you say something harsh, people accept it better. Let me try that. Fools. Was that easier? I'm not calling you fools. I was just wondering if you could imagine what that would feel like. But I don't know. He says, listen, you're wrong. He says, you are quite wrong. You are deceiving yourselves. You know why? You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And that is the conclusion. That is ultimately the bottom line. They had believed and accepted a lie, beloved, because they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, just a few implications and then close our time here. Think about what Jesus said here. These men were deceived. They were deceived about something really significant. The resurrection, life after death. He doesn't say they were deceived because they were dumb. They weren't dumb. They were educated men. Highly educated. He says they were deceived because they did not really understand the Word of God. And they did not know its power. And that's it. So the link is clear. Our deception comes. We deceive ourselves because we do not know or understand the Word of God. Beyond that, because we don't, we really don't understand the power of God. We really don't grasp it, the magnitude of it. I mean, I could think of multiple implications of that, but just a simple one would be, the Bible is clear that it says that what happened on the cross was an 8-point, 10-point, 12.0 in a magnitude of earthquake phenomena power. Because it conquered sin and death. Specifically, it conquered the power of sin in a person's life. Yet, Christians really don't know the Scriptures or the power of God will say things like, I can't. I can't overcome this. This is just who I am. You don't understand. This sin owns me. I cannot get out from under it. That's all a lie. It's all a lie. And so they choose to believe the lie instead of what God's Word says. And by that, they leave themselves in deception and darkness and the destructive forces that accompany such things. Instead of wholesale just accepting and believing and knowing what the Word of God says and believing in His power accomplished through the cross to overcome sin in one's life. And so people go on and on in their lives continuing in the same sin patterns, never breaking from it, and they are devastated by it. Beloved, also, if it is because we do not understand Scripture 
that we deceive ourselves, then it is no wonder that there is an ongoing attack and has been for 2,000 years against Scripture, which is the very foundation of Christian belief and practice, beloved. That's all we've got. It's all we need. But it's all we've got is this book. It is what we base. It is what I base our lives on. It is our authority because it is the Word of God to us. If the enemy can keep people from ever reading the Bible because they have been convinced by the intellectual elite that it is nonsense, that it is a 2,000-year-old book and it doesn't belong in the 21st century. There! Man, this thing is filled with contradictions. Don't even go near it. Bunch of bibble-babble. If they can convince people of that, and they are, then the enemy wins. Because this is the only way out of deception. It is the only way. Now, I'm either right or wrong, right? If I'm right, serious implications. If I'm wrong, then I'm just a babbling moron up here too. Babbling about some stupid book. You make the decision. But I'm right. In the end, beloved, it's a question of submission. Will you submit your mind and your life to God's Word and what it says, even if it is difficult or sometimes hard to accept? That's the question. Or will you choose to submit your mind to the inferior elitist, and there are thousands of them, the fools who claim to be wise, secular and religious, who arrogantly say they know and proclaim the truth, yet what they say directly contradicts this. It's your decision. And what concerns me really is that many circles, in many circles, the church now is moving away from emphasizing the Scriptures. They're going away from this. Beloved, you know, you guys are insane. I'm just going to tell you, you spend 50 minutes in here, because I always go over Listening to me exposit and explain this book. Do you know churches are like, we don't, that's, people don't want that. Let's, we get that thing down, man. Get it down to like 30 minutes, maybe 25. People won't put up with 50 minutes of hearing the Word of God. I mean, they're used to watching 30 minute sitcoms. That's their attention span. You give them any more than that, they're checking out on you. Please. This is it. This is why our whole service is focused around this thing. This is why most of everything we do, I would say all of everything we do, is focused on this thing, on this book, on what it says. Because we really believe that this is the Word of God and by it we come to know the truth and we stop being deceived and we walk out of darkness and into the light and out of the destructive patterns that kill us off and into the life-saving blessing that we find in the light of God's Word, in His truth and His righteousness. I'm done. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for uh, just being here with Your people. I thank You for Your Word. Father, I thank You that, that we have it. I can just think of so many places in our world where the government prevents the very Word of God that we have in abundance here in this room and most of us in our homes. Three, four, five, six Bibles, digital copies, everywhere. But they prevent that very Word. We take it for granted. We don't open it. We don't consider it. Not regularly. And yet these people are dying to have it and their government says no. Why? Why do they say no? We know why, Lord. I mean, if this book is just a bunch of babble, why not let it in? What's it going to do? Because they know. They know this book is your word. And when people encounter it and begin to read it and come to grips with it, it flat out changes their life. And they remove the submission that they had to these godless rules and thinking and philosophies and they 
put themselves under You, Lord. And they submit their minds and their hearts and their very lives to You, Lord. And the enemy wants nothing to do with that. So through the use of different and various ways, such as a government that suppresses the Word of God in its borders, the enemy prevents people from knowing the truth. Here we have it. Lord, help us relish it. If we could just walk away with this one thing, Father, if we could get more serious, more committed to knowing Your Word really, to reading it, to studying it, to meditating upon it, to memorizing it, Father, if we really got serious about it, man, the shackles that would come off of our lives, the way You would change us into Your image to the image of Jesus Christ. What a testimony we would become to our neighbors around us instead of looking at us and wondering, wow, they don't seem much different than everybody else. They would see a difference. And it would be attractive. Father, have Your way with us. Do this work in us. May the the name Summit Bible Church mean something. May the Bible really be about all we do. It may not just be a Sunday morning experience, but Lord, something we live in Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday. Father, wow, You will do incredible things as Your Spirit applies that very Word to our hearts and minds. And Father, then Your people will no longer be deceived by the lies that they have been told and continue to be told by those who claim to know the truth and yet are simply fools. In Jesus' name, amen.